Welcome to a special episode of Traverse Talks with me, Hannah Snyder. I'm speaking with Dr. Jacqueline Wilson Yakima about her new album, Works for the Bassoon by Native American Composers. Welcome, Dr. Wilson. Hi, nice to be here. All the songs you're hearing are from Dr. Wilson's album. Dr. Wilson is assistant professor of bassoon at Washington State University and a member of the Solstice Wind Quintet. Basically all things bassoon come to me at WSU. <laughs> so bassoon, is a that's a big wind instrument. Yes. Is it the biggest one? It's the of the main woodwind instruments. Mm-hmm. It's the bass instrument of the woodwind family. Um, you get contra alto options of instruments, but those are, are less common and they're kind of extensions of the primary instrument. So of, of the main woodwinds, flute, oboe, clarinet, saxophone, bassoon. Bassoon's the lowest for sure. Uh, what got you into bassoon? Well, I was a band kid. I came from a low-income family, didn't have private lessons or anything like that. At the time, I played the oboe. My band director at the time was Phil Simpson at Southridge High. He is still teaching in Kenwick School District, but he's at an elementary school, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> my, going into my junior year, my band director auditioned for the upperclassmen bands, and a freshman beat me out, and that's like socially devastating, you know? <laughs> and so he kind of sat me down, and he was like, you know, listen, I know you want to go to college for music. I know that you're going to depend on scholarships to do that and that the oboe isn't really working out, but the double reeds are strategic for what you're thinking. And so I want to switch you to bassoon. If you agree to this, I'll let you in the big kid band. So he switched me to the bassoon along with this advice and it just turned out to be the perfect fit, you know, for the for my age, for the time, for how my goals had been clarified, and for a fresh start mm-hmm. um, with an instrument that was better suited to me and my personality than the oboe. What, um, how do you mean? How was it? Well, the joke is, like, don't call the bassoon a big oboe. But really, the bassoon is a big oboe. If you keep making the bore of an oboe bigger, it becomes an English horn and then eventually a bassoon. So there was a lot of common skills mm-hmm. that applied. Things like half-holing or using octave keys the double read itself that held over but as the oboe gets bigger so does the target oh. and so me and my friend Galit joke that the oboe says no and <laughs> a lot of times the bassoon also says no but it says no less than the oboe and so a personality that's suited for the oboe would be like a problem solver, someone who loves details, someone who, you know, doesn't get intimidated by that aspect, kind mm-hmm. of the engineer's mind. Mm-hmm. You need some of that for the bassoon, but not to such a huge extent in order to achieve excellence. It can be a more laid back approach to that. That's kind of where I live. I, I love the details. I love making lists. I love making spreadsheets. I'm type A, mm-hmm. but there was some forgiveness there and some forgiveness in the fresh start when you need time to to catch up was just kind of everything I needed at the time. And so the bassoon kind of became my new best friend. I feel like with your uh, description of the bassoon versus oboe, I imagine you could create one of those online quizzes for like... Yeah, what, like your what, personality what, type. For what sure. woodwind are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. You should do that. You've got all this bassoon credibility obviously and I saw that you recently played with a group of musicians in New York Mm -hmm. with compositions specifically for you yeah how was that 
That was awesome. So what I think you're talking about is my performance at the Whitney Museum Mm -hmm. of American Art as part of the Biennial Festival. And so that was an opportunity, a super special opportunity that came about through a multi-year collaboration I've been doing with Navajo composer Raven Chacon. And he composed this set of works, um, something about Raven. He occupies this interesting space in between music and visual art. You can look at his pieces from any number of artistic viewpoints and put him in any number of categories. So he composes nearly entirely in what's called graphic scores. And it is a way of decolonizing his musical practice by not using Western notation. Mm -hmm. And so he did this set of graphic scores inspired by Zidkala Shah, who was a Yankton Dakota um, artist, activist, who learned classical music in the boarding schools and then used classical music as a tool to try to create political advocacy. And so Raven had the idea to create a set of 13 scores, each dedicated to a different indigenous woman artist activist. And for some reason, he deemed me worthy to be (laughs) included in the collection. I still pinch myself that he (laughs) included me. And that was in 2018 that my score was finished, and I've performed it several times. So it's called, the piece is called Forzit Kalashaw, And then each score is named after the woman to whom it's dedicated. So my piece is for Jacqueline Wilson. There's for Heidi Sunungtuk, for Suzanne Kite. Um, So each of the scores is named after a different woman. This has been a, 2022 has been a really good year for Raven. Um, He was not only selected to be featured in the Whitney Biennial, but he won the Pulitzer Prize in composition this year. As part of the Whitney Biennial Festival, he arranged, and the Whitney arranged, to have all 13 women out to perform our scores in live performance in this kind of, again, is it musical performance? Is it art installation? Yes to all. It's fun. Yes. (laughs) And probably the only time that we would all be in the same place. And unfortunately, not all 13 could make it. Some came virtually and sent recordings and that type of thing. But 11 of us were there. And so was Raven. And so we did two shows. And it was my first time being to New York City. And so to be there for this, you know, purpose that was musically significant and culturally significant Mm -hmm. and personally significant, it was just uh, surreal. Are you still like glowing from yes yes I did that this summer (laughs) the other day I was cleaning out my purse and found the tickets and I was like oh I gotta save these it's a good souvenir (laughs) for sure get them framed or something yeah this is a special episode of Traverse Talks with me Hannah Snyder speaking to Dr. Jacqueline Wilson about her album works for the bassoon by Native American composers so what inspired you to make this album I spend a lot of time elevating marginalized or underrepresented voices, and I have a special focus on Indigenous composition and collaborating, premiering, commissioning, and recording the works of Indigenous composers. And uh, when I set about this, there was really none of it existed. 
there are certainly Native people composing, but the instruments that they found inspiring were not the bassoon, apparently, because they're <laughs> just, um, there weren't many options. Mm-hmm. And so I have had to create this repertoire in collaboration with these composers, either through transcribing works that were originally composed for other instruments or by commissioning. And it's taken years to accumulate an album's worth of material, but by and by we got it done and that when I came to WSU and knew we had this fabulous resource of the recording studio and WSU records I knew that this was the first big project that I wanted to endeavor so yeah the work entirely features works either composed transcribed or commissioned by and for me so it's also really personal to me as well which is awesome well I know that with all of that work that goes into it, it's really hard to pick a favorite. Do you have a favorite piece oh, on the album? That's very difficult. Um, I have a couple standouts, but the one I'd probably choose to shout out is The Four Pieces for Bassoon and Piano by Wantio Basenti. It's a small community, as you might imagine, the classical music community who's also Native American. Mm-hmm. So we know each other, or at least know of each other, but... Tio is a composer, Juan Tio Basenti, who composed these pieces, uh, is someone who I admired for a long time. I really loved his works, and I was giving an interview on this Native-focused podcast called Next Gen Native, and they asked this question, like, who should we be listening to? What Native composer do you want to shout out? And I was like, oh, Juan Tio Basenti, his works are so fantastic. He's just, his sensibility is so modern, but also mixed with accessibility and interest and depth but also expression. And I just kind of went on fangirling about him for a while. And it turned out he was listening and he sent me a Facebook message and he said, hey, I've started to write a piece for you. So all these pieces I had to either, like like I said, transcribe or commission, but this work is actually a dedication. He just felt the inspiration to compose for me. And then we went into the collaborative process of him, you know, like sending me things and me, oh, is this the tempo you had in mind or that type of thing. So that was a work kind of born of mutual admiration and that makes it very special. In the process of this, I know that you've obviously studied Native American composers for a long time. Was there any new discoveries that you made? Yeah. One of the pieces that I play really commonly is the Kachina Dances by Louis W. Ballard, who's Quapaw. And he is deceased, and his family likes to be in relationship to the people who play his works, so they're not widely available. But another 
uh, native composer Jared Tate, who's Chickasaw, and I were talking, and Louis W. Ballard is kind of hailed as the grandfather of classical music composition in terms of indigenous representation. And Jared said, he was talking to me about resources he had of Ballard and um, things like that. And he said, but you know, I've found someone who was actually a bit older than Ballard. His name is Jack Kilpatrick and he's Cherokee. His archives live at the University of Oklahoma, but somehow they were like displaced. Like they, which I guess happens sometimes in libraries, like this box gets moved Mm. over here and then so-and-so retires and the new person doesn't quite know what's in that box. But his archives were discovered and all these manuscripts that weren't published exist through access in the University of Oklahoma library system. He just kind of told me about Jack Kilpatrick in this passing way. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I wonder if he wrote anything for the bassoon. He didn't write any solo works for the bassoon but he wrote several for the oboe and I went well I wonder if I change the octave and if I change you know this or that so his romance for oboe and strings became romance for bassoon and marimba as I transcribed it but yeah that was a work that totally came out of um you know hearsay and then researching this new voice that I hadn't been acquainted with before Snyder, and this is Traverse Talks. We're talking with Dr. Jacqueline Wilson Yakima about Native American representation in classical music. All the songs you're hearing are from Dr. Wilson's album, Works for the Bassoon by Native American Composers, just released on the WSU Records label. In your career, you've played a lot of non-Indigenous music. Mm-hmm. You're trained in, all classical musicians are pretty much trained in Western Music, mm-hmm. yeah. What do you appreciate the most about the indigenous composers compared to what you might hear in a traditional Western composition? Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap many times in what I admire in that I tend to be drawn to artists who have a element of personal expression in that which they create, putting their humanity into what they create. So for a lot of these native composers, that is an assertion of their cultural identity. Um, And that makes sense, especially when you look at the unique history of cultural suppression and how classical music was used as a tool of cultural suppression. It becomes this really cool act of rebellion and resistance and disruption that is really exciting to me. But in just the same way, you know, Dvorak asserting himself as a uh, Slavic individual or Beethoven asserting himself as a practitioner of the enlightenment and asserting his political ideals, the romantics and their highly expressive way of putting their personal feelings into their art, which makes it that much more human and that much more relatable. It's approached in very different ways, era to era, composer to composer, Western to non-Western, but I tend to be most drawn 
to music that has that element of personal expression. Um, this could only have been created by this individual because it represents their unique perspective. That's the music that resonates with me most deeply, usually. Have you done any research or discoveries about things that were written by indigenous people that got picked up by white writers, composers? Yeah, so probably the biggest example of this in music history is the Indianists composers of the, around the turn of the 20th century, Dvorak, who I mentioned earlier, who's kind of credited as this fabulous nationalist voice in Europe. Nationalism being a type of music in which the composer brings their national identity into the compositions. And at the time, the United States was making concerted efforts to kind of have a uniquely American voice. That was one of the artistic goals or trends at the time. The American Conservatory of Music, which would go on to be known as Juilliard, actually bring Dvorak over for a residency to teach young American composers how to be nationalist. So typically, nationalists would go to folk song, and immediately we have to ask the question of what is the folk music of the United States. And Dvorak's perspective was that the spiritual and Native American music formed what he thought to be the folk material that these non-Black, non-Indigenous composers should be incorporating into their works. This intersects with a legacy of assimilation, federal policies that were aimed to assimilate Native people culturally in the form of the residential boarding schools, the Dawes Act, etc. Because those were concerted, federally funded efforts, the belief was that Native people were going extinct. If assimilation is going to work, then Native culture will be eventually a thing of the past. And so there were um, federally funded ethnologists and ethnographers who went from tribal community reservations to collect stories, melodies, and other um, cultural artifacts. And those are housed in the Smithsonian, largely, and in published collections by these ethnographers, Alice Fletcher, for example, Francis Densmore, only because Native culture was seen to be this savage, uncivilized thing, they had to be fixed. So you'll listen to the wax cylinder and it will be A, and then you'll look at the transcription and it will be altered to fit Western diatonicism or major and minor scales. It will be harmonized. It will have notes added or removed to rhythmically fit a regular meter. So it's really completely changed in order to be sanitized culturally to be deemed appropriate for Western ears. So when these Indianist composers were looking for this quote-unquote folk material, they looked to the transcriptions of Francis Densmore and Alice Fletcher, some of whom's melodies were collected under um, really questionable methods from people who were certainly in a power dynamic with them to not contest the collection, let alone other insidious means of collecting that we know of. So it's problematic all around. Mm -hmm. And so we see this generation of composers using 
secondary or tertiary sources with really problematic origins. And for a very long time, that was thought of as native representation in yeah. classical music and uh Cadman's for American Indian songs, for example, mm-hmm. is a very popular example. Uh, the Land of Sky Blue Water was in a beer commercial for the very long time because mm-hmm. it came from Minnesota. I played the Thunderbird Suite last night, which is a really pretty piece of music, and it was based on the Blackfeet in Montana tunes yes. as well. Yeah, and that likely was, very similar origins. Yeah, I yeah. read his um, intro in the mm-hmm. score, and I was kind of like. Yeah, a lot of times they'll say collected, based on an original melody collected by. Mm -hmm. Um, It was also trendy for scores of that time to have like illustrations, highly romanticized illustrations, um, because the belief was that Native people were going extinct. And so it was this highly romanticized, like, look at it while you can. Yeah, I I think it's definitely multifaceted. I, I come at the question from a classical music and music history perspective, Mm -hmm. but I I think there's definitely multiple dimensions to contemporary Native representation. Um, But I definitely agree that there is an emphasis from many to most contemporary artists of all mediums, fashion design, television making, visual art, music, of contemporary self-representation, an assertion that Native people can speak for themselves and be the primary source, and a desire for those examples of self-representation to be of and reflect the present day in order to make the commentary of still here, which of course has the byproduct of, of resiliency and strength. I've had people say, you know, isn't it better to fold Native composers into a typical classical music concert and I think yes absolutely there's value in that and the, the normalizing of folding them into the repertoire but at the same time I really love giving recitals entirely of or one reason I'm excited about the album entirely of native voices is because you listen to it and you go wow Raven's music really sounds nothing like Tio's music and really sounds nothing like Connor's music which really sounds nothing like Ballard's music and it creates a connotation of yeah these are all individuals these are people this is not a monolith they all have unique perspectives they don't speak for their race or even their nation they speak for themselves as human beings and so I I really like the message that it sends in juxtaposing the multiple aesthetics of these unique individuals and do so purposefully You can learn more details about Dr. Jacqueline Wilson's work on her website, wilsonbassoon.com. This has been a special episode of Traverse Talks with me, Hannah Snyder. Thanks for listening.